Welcome to Manufacturing Talk Radio, your source for breaking news, business trends, and economic forecasts here and abroad that impact one-third of America's economy. And now your hosts, Lou Weiss and Tim Grady. Welcome to Manufacturing Talk Radio. My name is Tim Grady. I'm here with my co-host, Lou Weiss, and we are going to be talking about economic forecasts today. But before we get to our guest, Lou, you've uh, had a chance to look over some of the information, and we've been talking with Tim Fiore from the ISM and Anthony Nieves from the ISM, and the economy just looks too good. Well, I'm afraid to even talk about the economy <laughs> anymore because we can't get much better. And I'm, I'm afraid that our, our humorous economist, who's going to be our guest in a few moments, could screw that up, <laughs> but I don't think so. Yeah. But it, well, nonetheless, we, yes, you sir. understand that the definition of an economist is someone who finds the dark cloud behind every silver lining. You know, so I mean, they don't they don't call us the dismal science for nothing. And folks, there was Chris Keel, who's the uh, with the National Association of Credit Management, who's going to ruin our day for us, maybe. Uh, but we'll find out in a minute because we're going to take a very short break and we'll be right back. Manufacturing Talk Radio will be right back. Excellence. It's what separates good companies from average ones. This year's theme for the AME International Conference in San Diego is Create Waves of Excellence. Gain insights from keynote speakers, including innovation expert Jeremy Gucci, former NFL quarterback Joe Theismann, lean author and researcher Mike Rother, and leadership pro Liz Weissman. Witness operational excellence in person at Plant Tours from San Diego's diverse, innovative manufacturing community. Don't miss the opportunity to accelerate your journey toward excellence this fall in San Diego. Visit ame.org slash San Diego for more information and to register. We look forward to seeing you in San Diego. Welcome back to Manufacturing Talk Radio. And we're back and we're with Dr. Chris Keel, who is with the National Association of Credit Management. We met Chris at a Fabricators and Manufacturers Association International Conference, uh, Fabtech, that happens to be coming up in uh, November. And... He is their economist. He's also, also the economist for the Forging Industry Association. If I have that right, Chris, welcome to Manufacturing Talk Radio. Yeah, thank you very much. Well, we're glad to have you back. I'm sure that the credit managers are absolutely giddy and happy. Am I right? Well, you know, they're reasonably happy. You know, we did not have quite the robust response that the Purchasing Managers Index has. So, it sends a few kind of interesting signals because in the beginning we were talking about the economy really can't look any better. I mean, we have all these nice leading indicators, everything from employment to economic growth to the like, but the credit managers are the ones that kind of look a little bit ahead. They're not that concerned with what's happening today. They want to know what's happening when you owe them money. So they're (laughs) like, well... You know, what are you going to be like in 60 days or 120 days or 180 days? It's like, I don't I don't really care if you're doing good now. You can screw everything up in three months. <laughs> so <laughs> they sort of, of look down the road, and there's a little bit more caution, I guess you would say, within the, the ranks of the credit managers. We saw pretty good numbers when it comes to what we call the favorable index readings, things like, applications for credit and sales and dollar collections, but those that we classify as non-favorables, they're still kind of weak. Um, We still have several that are in the 40s, which would indicate contraction, and the ones that are in the positive territory are just barely. I mean, they're just a little over 50, and that's things like accounts out for collection, slow pays, um, disputes, bankruptcies, things of that nature. So there's there's still a little bit of, of concern and trepidation, um, kind of what you'd expect right before you get one of these kind of short-lived but purgative recessions. Um, we're 
still thinking that we're going to get one of those sometime in 2019, maybe early 2020. And what those tend to do is, A, they're really short. Uh, they usually last no more than a quarter or two. But what they do is go after companies that aren't really run very well, but have been succeeding kind of in spite of themselves. The economy has been good enough that it covers up a multitude of sins. And then the economy slows down, and incompetence is revealed. <laughs> and so <laughs> these companies are like, oh, wow, I'm not making any money. Yes, that's because you have no idea what you're doing. And so the little short, sharp recessions kind of clear the weeds and really kind of set you up for a nice recovery later because the well-run companies get more market share. Ah, uh, Okay. Curious, uh, Chris, about the bankruptcies. Um, you would think that the bankruptcy numbers would be going down a bit. You know, what's the expression about a, a rising ships and you know, good good times, rising ships, they all rise or whatever that is. Uh, yeah. But the bankruptcies seem to be holding at about a constant level. Yep, yep. The the ships will all rise except for the ones that have holes in them. Um, and and then then the rising tide just sinks them. So what we're looking at really is, and this is characteristic of almost any field, you're going to get one or two or three companies that kind of set the pace, and they begin to expand, they begin to add market share, they see their revenues go up, they see their profits go up, Everybody else in that sector now has to play catch-up, whether they're ready to or not. So they begin to try to expand, try to do the same things the successful companies are doing, but they're not quite ready. And in some cases, they borrow too much, they try to expand too fast, they do something that puts them in trouble. And you see this over and over and over again, because the... And that's, frankly, the strategy of the better-run companies, is they try to accelerate so fast that the others can't keep up. And it's the ones who are not really keeping up, who are not ready for this expansion, that find themselves in trouble. Because now they'll start running into issues, well, we borrowed money so we could buy some machinery, we were sure this was going to give us an edge, it didn't. And so now we're having trouble paying for the machinery that we bought, you know, and that's that's the kind of thing that starts to show up in the credit managers index. Now, Chris, the credit managers index really covers both manufacturing and non-manufacturing, both right. the areas that the ISM reports on. Are there any slices within there in particular that just aren't doing well? Of the groups that we monitor pretty closely, manufacturing in general has been doing pretty well. Um, we have not really seen a sector that's in trouble with the possible exception of the auto sector maybe for the last six months. Um, the auto sector has slowed down just a bit. Um, that's been showing up in a lot of data. But there was also a lot of trepidation about What's the new NAFTA going to look like? How is it going to be affecting auto sector activity? You know, is there going to be any sort of punitive trade measure imposed on European cars, et cetera? So the auto sector was more worried about what was going to happen later than what was happening now. When it comes to sectors that were struggling, those mostly showed up in the services side. So. A little bit of, of pullback when it comes to construction, um, and oddly enough, it's it's not demand that's falling apart within construction. There's really nothing internally wrong with the supply-demand equation. The challenge with construction, they can't find people to do the building. So there are sectors all over the country where the demand is there. You've got builders who are willing to put the effort in, I can't find anybody to work. Um, right now, it's almost a one-year wait to get a drywall team in Dallas. So wow. hot property markets are just, they're, they're bogged down. You know, they can't, they can't respond the way they would like to. Retail has had some of its issues as well. And this isn't really necessarily connected to the economy. It's sort of connected to 
what's been happening in retail in general. You know, even as retail has gotten stronger, it's gotten stronger for the Amazons of the world, not for the big department stores. So the department stores are still struggling. The malls are still struggling. And increasingly, other kind of brick-and-mortar retailers are struggling because the consumer is spending and they're buying lots more stuff but they're having it delivered by UPS and FedEx um, rather than going out and buying it themselves. And soon to be delivered by drones. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Uh, Chris, I don't think we've ever really talked in any to any depth about uh, the forging industry and being that you're the uh, economist for the Forging Industry Association. Why don't you give us a little insight into what's going on there, uh, being that uh, there have been several uh, bankruptcies this past year. Uh, right. In 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 face of the fact that this year has been really quite good in the forging area that we're in, at least. Yeah. It, so, I mean, it has been it has been good. You've got this is an industry that is highly dependent on sort of the end user of what they do. So it's it's one of those things that. The foraging industry becomes very connected to automotive, heavy trucks, agriculture, anything, the energy sector. So as you see those sectors have their good years and bad years, it affects the foraging industry. And right now, you've got at least two of them that are doing very well. Automotive is still growing pretty well. Heavy truck is still growing pretty well. Agriculture, on the other hand, has been dipping. You know, you do not see the kind of purchasing that you would like to see because the farmers are all saying this has been a terrible year uh, and Mm -hmm. weather-wise it's been a mess and then of course we have the tariff threats and so it's it's not been a good year for them to do any investing. Energy used to be down, is now coming back. So you're seeing a lot more activity for mining equipment and rig equipment, the rig count is up, you know, there's an awful lot of foraging that goes into the energy sector. So it's been fairly reactive, which has always been the, the kind of the blessing and the curse of the forager is that, you know, it's not like you can create your own demand. It's just you're waiting for some other sector to say, hey, we're booming. Now we're going to need some of this equipment, some of these parts. And right. the good the news oil- yeah, the oil and, and it, gas has been very strong, especially oh, at, 70, at seventy-five dollars a barrel, which just tickles my heart. <laughs> oh yeah, and and the predictions are that with just not a whole lot of of additional activity, it could hit a hundred bucks before the end of the year. And a lot of that is demand driven. Um, a lot of it is simply that the rival producers around the world are facing their own struggles. So it puts a great deal more emphasis on the U.S. I mean, we're we are now the world's largest oil producer by quite a bit. Um, we are now exporting crude, which we didn't used to do. Um, we still export a lot of of the finished fuel, which we've always done. Um, but and even the changes with with NAFTA have had a lot of impact on oil because what a lot of people forget is that we got involved with NAFTA really because of oil. Um, Back in the day when NAFTA was being discussed, the number one concern for the U.S. was oil supply. We were importing 80 to 90 percent of the crude that we used. We noticed that the Canadians and Mexicans had oil. So we said, here's the deal. If you will promise to supply us with the oil that we need, we'll share some of our wealth with you. So the NAFTA agreement prohibits Um, Mexico and Canada from joining OPEC, and it also gives the U.S. first right of refusal to any of their oil. Now, we don't need it as much. Um, We produce our own, so now we're looking at those two countries going, well, that was great. We really enjoyed your oil. We now want our manufacturing back. And the Canadians and the Mexicans are like, well, wait a minute. We gave you oil for all these years. Is there no reward for this? And it's like, well, you know, we patted you on the head once. Was that enough? (laughs) Chris, I'm wondering 
uh, in the forging industry, both open die, closed die, and to some degree castings, which are downstream from the mills, are the mills now struggling with deliveries? Are their lead times going out, or are they keeping up with demand? They are keeping up to a degree. Um, you have not really seen a tremendous change in steel consumption at this stage. And part of it, I think, is the tariffs have been sort of on again, off again. Um, we stop importing from a country, and then we start up again. And there's was a great deal of what amounted to hoarding in the beginning, where companies were anticipating this issue and began to load up with as much product as they could. So the supply chain has not been as interrupted as we thought it would be. It just got expensive. Um, the average price increase for, for steel almost across the board was 40%. Um, same thing with aluminum. So, so far, the supply chain has not been showing a lot of distress, but that's one of those things that's likely to change relatively soon. And the supplies that people were bringing in earlier in the year are being exhausted, and the stuff that's going to be replacing it is now subject to these tariffs and is getting harder to get. The other issue, though, is how many places are going to be given exemptions with the 232 provision. Um, at the moment, it seems fairly generous, um, but that's also something that's in question. Mm-hmm. For the sake of uh, our audience, could you explain the uh, 232? Yeah, it basically is we have a, a ban for all intents and purposes on imported steel. I mean, you can bring it in, but it's going to be carrying this 25% tariff. You can apply to the powers that be and say, look, the kind of steel that I need is not produced anywhere in the U.S. It is simply not made here. There's no way that I can replace that foreign import with something domestic. So all you're doing by limiting what I can import is putting me at a disadvantage. So you make the case that the steel that you want is simply not produced anywhere but Japan or South Korea or Germany or wherever, and then you get an exemption from the tariff, and you're allowed to buy that steel without paying the tariff. If the steel is something that is produced or can be produced in the U.S., even if it's not currently being produced, but it could be, then it's much harder to get that exemption. Okay, that uh, explains that uh, fully. Yeah, it's a messy piece of business. You know, we're all kind of watching the tariffs, and now that we have the USMCA, uh, unfortunately an acronym that no one can pronounce very well between Canada, Mexico, and the United States. Chris, what's happening with Mexico and, I'm sorry, with China in terms of an agreement? My contention is that China doesn't really care. Well, there's there's a, a bit of that. Now, as for the new pact, you know, what what I don't know if anybody else, but the first time I heard it, the first thing that popped in my mind was the YMCA song. So I'm trying to figure <laughs> out the gestures that, you know, you and anyway. Um, I don't think that this will have a huge impact on what's going on with the U.S. and China. But we now have seen several times what amounts to the Trump style of negotiating, where it is not all that different from what we've done in the past when it comes to trade packs, but instead of a kind of an obvious carrot and stick, it's really more of a stick, a bigger stick, and a carrot. It's a little more belligerent. It's a little more confrontational. But it kind of ends up in the same place because with the revision of NAFTA, Many of the things that were promised, well, we we didn't do them. I mean, we came up with something that kind of satisfied what we wanted and kind of satisfied what Mexico and Canada wanted. I think what's happening now with China is at the end of the day, we want one thing from China. We want them to buy more of our stuff. We really don't object to buying their stuff because it's nothing we produce here. We're... 
the only thing that's going to change if we don't buy these consumer goods from China is that we'll buy them from some other country. We'll buy them from India or Sri Lanka or Guatemala. It's mm-hmm. not going to be reproduced in the U.S. So we don't have problems with that. We just want the Chinese to use more of their money to buy more of our stuff, which coincidentally kind of matches up with what Xi Jinping wants in China. He's trying to develop a middle class. He understands the middle class is going to behave like every other middle class, and they're going to want imported goods as well. So I think part of it is trying to figure out a way to get the Chinese consumer to buy more American stuff, get the government to buy more American stuff, and to get the Chinese not to try to copy some of the more sophisticated things that we make. Um, And that's kind of where I think the negotiations are going to sit, just figuring out at what point each country feels the most pain. And at the moment, China is getting the, the worst end of the deal. They're suffering much more than we are. Their their economy, uh, additionally, is uh, beginning to suffer. Their GDP is somewhere around six or seven, uh, which for China, you know, when they came, when they come off of the fourteen percent GDP, six percent is almost going bankrupt. Uh, yeah, I mean, it really is. It's it's their equivalent of of a recession. And the challenge with the two countries is that. If we're trying to replace China as a source, that's easy. I mean, I have been seeing just in the last two or three weeks, every business conference that I've attended, every business hotel is full of people from India who are basically Mm. saying, oh, so you're not buying from China anymore. You know we make this stuff, too. Mm. And and the Chinese are like, great, you know, we're going to lose market share to India because as China is shrinking, India is growing. So we can much more easily replace what we imported from China. China needs a new consumer, and there is no consumer like the U.S. They cannot make up the difference by selling to Europe or to Japan or to anybody else. So at the end of the day, you know, in, in this respect, Trump was right. We have the leverage. It's it's not going to be super pleasant for the consumer in the short run, but by next year, assuming that we continue to have a barrier to China, we're going to be seeing a whole lot of stuff showing up in the Walmarts of the world that's made in India. Chris, I'm just wondering about the intellectual property piece, which has always been kind of a stick in the eye of the U.S., and if that's moving any closer to resolution. It goes in fits and spurts, because one of the difficulties is how do you transfer technology without losing some control over it? And and every country in the world struggles with this. Also, every country in the world is really good at exploiting the people they do business with. I mean, <laughs> we steal technology from the Germans, and the Germans steal it from us. And, you know, when it comes right down to it, the country that has done the most I guess, theft of technology over the years has been the U.K. I mean, the British are really good at at copying things that we've done, and so were the Japanese. Part of the challenge is is keeping some modicum of control over how that technology is used. And frankly, most companies don't transfer all of it. Um, They kind of build in limitations. They make sure that parts are coming from a specific place, but it's, it's tough. I mean, you can usually protect your intellectual property for a year or two, and past that it gets it gets challenging. It's the old joke in China that the good news for Microsoft was that China decided to adopt Windows as the operating system. The bad news is they bought one copy. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, uh, that's terrific. Well, that's going to make it uh, interesting. But I also appreciate the fact, Chris, that you have a more worldly view and you can bring to the table the discussion about, uh, you know, who actually is stealing our technology. And while they're stealing from us, we're stealing from them. Right. Uh, and it's more than just China. Yeah, I mean, it, it's 
frankly, it's the way business is done. I mean, it's like the the height of, of, of I guess, the being impressed with your competitor is that you're trying to steal from them at the same time. You're looking at what they do going, wow, I can do that. And it's one of the oldest corporate tricks in the book is to hire the person who used to run that particular division for your rival and say, so what can you tell me about how that company does things? And so there's a certain amount of just competitive pressure. When it becomes overtly espionage, when it becomes overtly theft, when there is violation of patent laws and this sort of thing, then it gets a lot more serious. And the U.S. has always struggled with the rest of the world if for no other reason than a lot of what we sell is brand-driven. So it really isn't the object itself. It's the fact that it's a particular brand. And anyone who's traveled to Asia is familiar with the <clears throat> the Rolexes that soon become an Olex or a <laughs> Lex as part of the letters fall off the watch. Um, and it's like, oh, you know, wow, I got a Rolex for 10 bucks. Um, so, I mean, not real. <laughs> well, Chris, we're, I'm going to leave you with a question, and we're going to take a, a short uh, break. And that is, uh, what's going on in South America, particularly uh, one of my favorite countries, uh, Brazil? Uh, are they coming out of the muck, or, or are they still stuck in the mire? So think about that for a minute. We're going to be right back after a commercial break. Manufacturing Talk Radio will be right back. Hi, this is Lou Weiss. Some of you know me as Lou Weiss with the yellow jacket. But today I'm president of All Metals and Forge Group. We are proud and pleased to be the sponsors for Manufacturing Talk Radio and for WAM, Women and Manufacturing, since 2013. AMFG is an open-die forge facility and a producer of seamless rolled rings since 1972. Most of the metal families are available in our inventory for production to help keep down delivery times due to mill deliveries of raw stock. We also specialize in machined, large, and complex forged parts. So give us a look at steelforge.com, our website, or give us a call at 973-276-5000. Send us your inquiries, your drawings, and specifications. Our quoting turnaround time is usually less than 24 hours to help you get your job from your client. Give us a try. We're almost doing this 50 years of partnering with our clients. We'd like to partner with you as well. Thanks for listening. Welcome back to Manufacturing Talk Radio. So we're back, and we're going to hit you with the $64 question as we started out uh, before the break. Uh, what's going on in South America? Yeah, you mentioned Brazil and whether or not they're going to be coming out of the muck. And, in fact, they're getting muckier by the minute. Um, the elections that are coming up are really creating a lot of concern because the, the current front runner, and it looks like he's likely to win, is Jair Bolsonaro, who is a very right-wing populist, kind of in the same vein as you know, maybe the new government in Italy or National Front in France. I mean, he's he's an extremist, and is capitalizing on the fact that the Brazilians are tired of corruption, they're tired of crime, and and they're kind of looking for kind of a heavy-handed cowboy to come in and clean things up. And unfortunately, there's an awful lot of evidence that he's as corrupt as all the other politicians, <laughs> and so the cleaning up part probably isn't going to happen. But it also puts into real doubt whether Brazil is going to take the sort of steps necessary to turn its economy around. As a populist, he's making the same promises that the others have made, which is, I'm going to give you lots of money, and I'm going to cut your taxes, and I'm going to spend money from the government to make everybody happy and not worry about the fact that my debt is now completely unsustainable. Brazil is famous for getting in its own way, and, and it's doing it again. Argentina is struggling. Uh, they're trying to figure out how to kind of get back in the good graces of 
the world financial community. The Argentine peso has lost a lot of its value. The Macri government is now in serious stress in trying to figure out how to pull itself back from the brink. Um, Colombia is probably also heading in a somewhat more right-wing direction and is not making anybody too comfortable. And then, of course, you have the complete basket case of Venezuela, which is an utterly failed state where 75% of the population is under the poverty line. They have hyperinflation that has gotten so bad that people were being ordered to simply draw in more zeros on their currency so that it would be worth more. So if you have a dollar, go ahead and make it a million. What the hell? It's not of any use anyway. <laughs> so it's it's a it's not a good thing. Um and then probably the most worrisome is that we have a new president in Mexico who is a very radical leftist, or at least has been, and we're trying to figure out if we're going to have a new Hugo Chavez in Mexico or if uh, Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador, or AMLO as he's known, turns into a version of Lula from Brazil. So Lula was a former left-wing firebrand who drifted to the center once he was made president. Of course, he was also incredibly corrupt, um, which is, again, par for the course in Brazil. One can only hope that we get a Lula-like sort of center-left guy out of Mexico without the corruption, but we'll see. Well, the corruption in that part of the world is kind of cultural. This has oh, yeah. Become, but, yeah. So, meanwhile, talking about debt and uh, Venezuela's debt is uh, unsustainable, Um we used to have a debt in the United States, <laughs> yes, right? Yes. We don't it's have it because we don't, we don't talk about it, so we must not have it. I know. It just, it just magically disappeared. No, we still have, we have a debt that's 110% of the largest GDP in the world, um, which is not a good thing. That percentage, that ratio is never supposed to be more than 60%. If it makes us feel any better, China's is 280% of their GDP. But at Ooh. some point, it would be nice if we would emulate our good friends down under, the Australians. They have had 25 straight years of economic growth. They have a debt-to-GDP ratio of 40%. They routinely find ways to pay off their debt and deficit whenever they have a good couple of years. I mean, the Australians take the attitude, frankly, that most businesses do, that, you know, when you have a good year, you pay down your debts, you do whatever you can to prepare for the years when it's not so good. And unfortunately, the U.S. attitude is, you know, like, wow, party on, Wayne. Um, we'll always find a way to come up with more money. <laughs> and that's, that usually ends up being highly unhelpful. Well, I've been telling Tim now for a couple of years to the way the United States should take care of its debt is just say, we don't owe you any money. Yeah, and that's exactly. It. It's, well, it's all done. I mean, what are they yeah. going to do? They're going to send us a collection. Or we can do what we've always done. You know, most every country in the world, when they run deficits and debt, eventually have to deal with that balance of payments problem by using their reserve currency. They have to pay for it, and the reserve currency is the dollar. Right. And that's the problem, because, you know, since they all have a limit to how much of their reserve currency, we have the printing press. So it's like, oh, we need to owe more money? Hey, pay Frank, crank her up, you know, let's get some more dollars that's out it. there. That's it. And at some Works point, for me. Yeah, you know, I mean, I've I've been trying to figure out how to get that old Xerox machine in the back room to do double duty. <laughs> well, Chris, I know that Zimbabwe some years back when they hit the hyperinflation stage and then they came out with a new currency because their zillion dollar bill didn't buy a loaf of bread anymore, eventually yeah. collapsed and adopted a new currency called the U.S. dollar. I don't know what right. they call it down there. But in effect, it's like the Panama uh, Bolivar, whatever they call their currency. It's a U.S. currency note. Uh, yeah. How how bad will Venezuela choke on the fact that they're going to have to adopt the U.S. dollar at some point? 
Well, it's interesting because the Zimbabweans have a really unique name for that. They call it the U.S. dollar. Um, <laughs> and, and you have many countries in the world now, Ecuador uses the dollar. So what effectively happens and has already happened in Venezuela is that the public stops using the local currency. And so the dollar already is the currency in Venezuela. Nobody wants to get paid in the Bolivar. It's worthless. So the only thing people will take will be somebody else's currency, preferably the dollar. But in a pinch, they'll take a euro. Um, they'll even maybe even take a Mexican peso if it gets really desperate. But at some point, you wake up and realize as a government that your entire population has abandoned the local currency. And that's when you have to come back and either just give it up and say, yep, we're going to use the dollar, you know, just get used to it, or... You create a currency that is completely and utterly pegged to the dollar. Now, that's what Argentina has done in the past. And so it kind of works, except that you know, you're now subject to whatever is happening with that, with that currency, and sometimes it favors you and sometimes it doesn't. But it's in Venezuela and other failed states, it's either use somebody else's currency or and it's almost a complete barter economy where people are not even using currency at all. They're just exchanging goods for goods and services for goods. Tim and I have been to Panama uh, several times over the last couple of years, and I'm not sure that there are many people in Panama that know what their currency is. Oh, I'm, I would, the Balboa, Panamanian Balboa. <laughs> yeah, but the, yeah. The, the young people, you know, it's the dollar. Yep. Yeah, exactly. And we've been down we've been down there enough. I've never seen a Panamanian dollar. No. Yep. You, you don't get it's it. Not right? unusual. And particularly now because you're getting situations where a lot of developing countries have, have sort of leapfrogged when it comes to currency and people keep everything on their phone. You know, so they're literally trading, they're doing all their buying and selling off their cell phone. And mm -hmm. So they hardly ever even touch actual paper or metal currency. So it's it's a currency is one of the more fascinating topics within economics because it's all arbitrary. Um, no currency in the world is backed up by anything other than people's willingness to take it. And so that can change in an instant. I mean, right now, where the dominant currency probably will stay the dominant currency, but if for some reason the U.S. experienced some kind of economic convulsion uh, to the point that people lost faith in the dollar, well, it would just simply collapse because it's it's not backed up by anything. We don't have enough gold. We don't have enough anything to back the dollar. Uh, neither does any other country. Well, there's always the Bitcoin. That's right. That's right. <laughs> that's that's totally backed by nothing other than a uh, computer, a, a delirious uh, individual who came up with the idea of make something from nothing. Uh, Absolutely. So that's, uh, All you have to do is is learn to mumble phrases like blockchain and and cryptocurrency, right. and then people just get so confused they just give you whatever they have in in sheer panic and say, "My God, I have no idea what you're talking about here." Take it all. <laughs> yeah, take my money. I went uh, a year ago. I went to a conference uh, at Columbia University, and they had a gentleman speaking about cryptocurrency and Bitcoin and so on. And I was there for about two hours, and uh, it was over. And uh, the audience stood up, and they were talking and communicating with one another. And I swear that nobody knew what they just went through. No, oh, I'm sure. Yeah, I'm it was just sure. it, yep. it just seemed like one big sham. I I've, I've the... seen similar conferences, and even as people are valiantly trying to explain how all this stuff works, somebody will ask them a question, and they get a blank look, like, <laughs> you don't know how this works either, do you? <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I look at cryptocurrencies as the Bernie Madoff school of money. That's right. <laughs> So, Chris, uh, the thing that we've been chatting with ISM about, Tim Fiore and Anthony Nieves and other folks we're talking to, is contrary to some of the numbers that you're looking at, everybody's kind of rosy on 2019 and even into 2020, you expect a slight correction. 
So kind of in, in wrapping up this segment, what's it look like over the next couple of years? Yeah, I think the thing that is that is worrisome and leading to this sense that we're going to see some sort of a correction next year is really inflation. And we have not quite seen the inflationary activity that we thought we would by now, mostly because we've not seen the increase in wages. Um, generally speaking, the two things that feed inflation are commodities prices and wage inflation. Commodities prices have indeed gone up. They have not gone up as drastically as we thought they might, but, I mean, oil has been up 24% from what it was earlier in the year. Steel prices are up. Aluminum prices are up. Um, many of the metals have gone right along with them. Um, rosins have gone up for people in the plastic business. Hydrocarbons have gone up. You've not seen astronomical increases, but they've all been on the rise. What we haven't seen is the wage hikes, and we should. The Phillips curve says that when the unemployment rate gets low enough, then you get wage inflation. The reason that we haven't seen it is that the people who are being hired are not being paid very much. They're not very qualified. Um, the assumption is they're going to have to be trained, and people aren't going to pay premium money for somebody who's really not going to be useful to them for 18, 24, 36 months. That will begin to change. You will finally start having people who are moving from being a trainee into a full-fledged employee, and they will get more money. You're also going to start seeing companies more aggressively competing with each other. So it won't necessarily be the new worker who's been looking for work, but you're going to have a lot more poaching where companies are going to go after each other's already trained employees, and they're going to do it by offering them more money. And that will force the company that's currently hiring them to raise their wages. Otherwise, they're going to lose them. So mm -hmm. I think you're going to see a wage hike start, and it already has, with some of those people who've been in the business for, for quite a while. There's also going to be a movement towards trying to keep people from retiring um, because you don't want to lose them. So they're going to be hitting the age when they could retire, and you're already seeing companies saying, hey, if I pay you more money, if I pay you a bonus, will you work a few more years? And and you're getting a lot of boomers who said, like, yeah, I don't have a life anyway, so I might as well keep working. <laughs> and so that all combines to hike inflation. When that starts, the Fed can be counted upon to raise interest rates. So if we do get what I think will be a mild recession, in 2019-2020, it's going to be provoked by the Fed. It's going to be the Fed raising rates to the point that it slows the economy down enough that you may have a quarter or two of anemic growth. But as I said, this is kind of a economist's favorite recession where you go down in a hurry for a little bit and then you come roaring back right after. So even if we do have that late 2019, early 2020 downturn, I think by the middle of 2020, we're back on growth again. Well, we still have the problem of, uh, as stated by the U.S. Department of Labor, that last month we hit the highest number of 506,000 unfilled manufacturing jobs in the United yep. States. Yep. That, that's a huge number. And it and unless we do something really meaningful in terms of skill gaps and uh, retiring uh, uh, baby boomers and the millennials who don't want to go to work and all of that stuff, that uh, that number of a half a million is going to go to two and a half million in the next nine, ten years. Yeah, and it's, and it's unfortunately or fortunately, we know how to solve that particular issue. We've done it many times in the past. But it becomes very emotional. The only way that we deal with the shortage of construction workers and truck drivers and manufacturing employees and the like is through immigration. And we have many, many times in the past years suddenly decided that we needed a whole lot more Irish and Italians and Bohemians and Chinese and the like. And the fact is that Mexico is loaded with people who have developed skills in manufacturing. 
Mexico has right. a lot of truck drivers. They have a lot of construction workers. You know, we have been watching for the last two or three years the immigration coming into the U.S. It's overwhelmingly non-Mexican. And the Border Patrol has been reporting on this for a while, saying we've never had fewer people from Mexico coming into the U.S. The people who are coming in now, Salvadorans, Guatemalans, Hondurans, Nicaraguans, they're fleeing Central America because it's messed up with civil wars and drug gangs and the like. The Mexican population that used to come here pretty regularly, they have jobs in Mexico and they're not leaving. So at some point, we're going to have to look to other countries to say we need your manufacturing workers, we need your truck drivers, we need your construction workers. And that's going to force a lot of Americans to do a rethink as to where we get our labor and what our relationship is to other countries. We're also going to recruit a lot more from Africa, um, even Asia, as we are seeking out people with the skills that we now need. Well, Chris, we appreciate your insights, and thank you again for joining us on Manufacturing Talk Radio. We always look forward to not just your commentary, but your insights and your lightheartedness where we all need a little touch of levity. Thanks for being with us. You're so welcome. And, uh, you know, just, just enjoy the ride for a while, and then when it collapses, you can think back on it with, with fond memories. Uh, thank you chris we appreciate uh, as tim just said uh, your uh, continued uh, diligence uh, uh, coming on our show and uh, knowing as much as you do it's uh, really we don't know for sure if you really know all this stuff or it's scripted for a radio (laughs) show but it sounds good anyway Exactly. I mean, the most important skill that an economist has is the ability to completely make stuff up and sound plausible. So, right. The more credible you sound, <laughs> the worse the number could really be. Exactly. Exactly. So, All right. You, you tell them to have a good evening, afternoon, yeah. evening, yeah. whatever it is. Correct. And Correct. we will. Thanks, Chris. Thanks. Uh, we've been we've been speaking with Dr. Chris Kill, who is uh, the Chief Economist for the Fabricators and Manufacturers Association, the Forging Industry Association. He's with Armada Corporate Intelligence. Uh, He's with the Credit Managers Association. And before we drop out of this show, we've got one more sponsor that we have to get a commercial in. So let's take a quick commercial break. Manufacturing Talk Radio will be right back. How do you keep your business humming? Where do you go when you're looking for quality suppliers of new equipment? Components, MRO supplies, repair services, or even raw materials. 30 years ago, you would have turned to the Thomas Register. Today, those big green books are better than ever at thomasnet.com, industry's leading platform for product sourcing and supplier discovery. You can easily find that local machine shop, national distributor, OEM, or any supplier having the right quality certification. Fast and free. You can even get to specific products, components, or downloadable 3D CAD drawings simply by entering specifications or part numbers. There's a reason ThomasNet.com has become the go-to supplier discovery tool for procurement professionals and engineers. There's simply no other resource like it, and it's all free. Go to ThomasNet.com today and see how top-notch supplier discovery doesn't have to put a dent into your bottom line. Welcome back to Manufacturing Talk Radio. We're back. That was uh, all great news. I love to hear Chris talk about, Lou, the different economic situations around the world and currencies and what's going on with governments and elections. And He knows far more than your general economist, I believe. That's true, but uh, certainly this report that he gave us today gives us three of a kind in a poker game yeah, right. uh, in that. Uh, everyone that we are now talking to regarding the economy and uh, not only the economy now, but the economy into the future, uh, near future, uh, 19 and 20, even though uh, Chris was talking about a bit of, bit of a dip somewhere along the line, which I guess has to happen. But there's some really startling numbers. Uh, you know, the one number that I picked up today 
you know, I'm happy as as, as a pig and you know what regarding <laughs> the $75 barrel oil prices. And Chris was talking about it before the end of the year going to $100. So I'd rather be paying it at the at the gas at the uh, gas tank um, to pay, pay for fuel there, but it's bringing in business and manufacturing widespread across the country. Yes, it is, and I, and I know that you love a hundred dollar barrel oil because All Metals and Forge Group supplies a lot of material to the oil industry, not just in new downhole stuff, but in right. repair and maintenance. Uh, oh, I, we love repair and maintenance. <laughs> we love that. Even when oil starts getting to be about $65, $70 a barrel, it, they're already fixing some of the offshore rigs because they know what's coming. And now we're at 75 and they're cooking with, uh, with, with gas. Yeah, <laughs> literally. <laughs> literally. And uh, $100, uh, you know, wow. It's like a good time for uh, uh, our administration to impose tariffs against our number one supplier of product that goes into our oil and gas industry. Yeah, that's right. Let's see if we can choke off. Let's oil see if and we gas can problem. kill that industry, you know, before the end of the year. Right. So, uh, well, that being said, uh, great show, great period of time that we're in, and uh, I guess I'll see you uh, next month. Yes. Uh, so things are going well in the economy. If uh, things are going well for you, we'd love to hear from you. Send us an email at info at mfgtalkradio.com. You can find all of our radio shows in our library. And the hottest ones are up front on our homepage, along with some great articles. And the link over to our sister show, Women Manufacturing, which is at womenandmfg.com. So keep in tune with Manufacturing Talk Radio, and thanks for being with us again today and listening to our show. Bye for now. Thanks for joining us on Manufacturing Talk Radio. You can hear our next broadcast each Tuesday at 1 p.m. Eastern Standard Time at mfgtalkradio.com. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.